The Braille Monitor, Volume 66, Number 6, June 2023, Gary Wonder, Editor. Distributed by email, in ink print, in Braille, and on USB flash drive by the National Federation of the Blind, Mark Riccobono, President. Telephone, 410-659-9314. Email address, nfb at nfb.org. Website address http colon slash slash www.nfb.org nfbnet.org http colon slash slash www.nfbnet.org nfb newsline information 866-504-7300 like us on facebook facebook.com slash national federation of the blind follow us on twitter at nfb underscore voice Watch and share our videos, youtube.com slash nationsblind. Letters to the President, address changes, subscription requests, and orders for NFB literature should be sent to the National Office. Articles for the Monitor and letters to the Editor may also be sent to the National Office or may be emailed to gwunder, G-W-U-N-D-E-R, at nfb.org. Monitor subscriptions cost the Federation about $40 per year. Members are invited and non-members are requested to cover the subscription cost. Donations should be made payable to National Federation of the Blind and sent to National Federation of the Blind, 200 East Well Street at Jernigan Place, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230-4998. The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness is not the characteristic that defines you or your future. Every day we raise the expectations of blind people because low expectations create obstacles between blind people and our dreams. You can live the life you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. The National Federation of the Blind is not an organization speaking for the blind. It is the blind speaking for ourselves. Each issue is recorded on a thumb drive, also called a memory stick or USB flash drive. You can read this audio edition using a computer or a National Library Service digital player. The NLS machine has two slots. The familiar book cartridge slot just above the retractable carrying handle and a second slot located on the right side near the headphone jack. This smaller slot is used to play thumb drives. Remove the protective rubber pad covering this slot and insert the thumb drive. It will insert only in one position. If you encounter resistance, flip the drive over and try again. Note, if the cartridge slot is not empty when you insert the thumb drive, the digital player will ignore the thumb drive. Once the thumb drive is inserted, the player buttons will function as usual for reading digital materials. If you remove the thumb drive to use the player for cartridges, when you insert it again, reading should resume at the point you stopped. You can transfer the recording of each issue from the thumb drive to your computer or preserve it on the thumb drive. However, because thumb drives can be used hundreds of times, we would appreciate their return in order to stretch our funding. Please use the return envelope enclosed with the drive when you return the device. Convention Bulletin, 2023 A photo appears on the page, the caption, Hilton America's Houston Convention Center Hotel. There are plenty of reasons one might travel to Houston, Texas, the fourth most populous city in the United States. One might visit for the nearly three-week-long Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. The city's vibrant art scene boasts the largest concentration of theater seats outside of New York City. And no Houston resident would let a visitor forget that the city is home to the 2022 World Series champion Houston Astros. There is little question that Houston has a great deal going for it. The city's real draw, however, 
is that it will play host to the National Federation of the Blind's 2023 National Convention. It has now been more than 50 years since the largest gathering of the organized blind last convened in Houston, Texas, and our return in 2023 will be an event not to be missed. The Hilton America's Houston Hotel, 1600 Lamar Street, Houston, Texas, 77010, will serve as our convention headquarters hotel. Situated in the heart of downtown Houston, across the street from the beautiful 12-acre Discovery Green Park, the Hilton Americas is an ideal location for our annual event. Ballrooms, breakout space, and sleeping rooms are all stacked in the same tower housed on a single city block, simplifying navigation and minimizing travel distances. In-room internet is complimentary to all attendees, as is access to the health club and swimming pool on the 22nd floor. There are several dining options on the hotel's lobby level, including a Starbucks for those of you requiring a caffeine fix, and many more choices within easy walking distance from the Hilton's front door. The nightly rate at the Hilton America's Houston is $119 for singles, doubles, triples, and quads. In addition, the sales tax rate is 8.25%, and the hotel occupancy tax rate is 17%. To book your room for the 2023 convention, call 1-800-236-2905 after January 1 and ask for the NFB convention block. For each room, the hotel will take a deposit of the first night's room rate and taxes and will require a credit card or a personal check. If you use a credit card, the deposit will be charged against your card immediately. If a reservation is canceled before Monday, June 1, 2023, half of the deposit will be returned. Otherwise, refunds will not be made. We have also secured overflow space at the wonderful Marriott Marquis Houston. The Marriott is only a three-block walk directly across Discovery Green, or attendees can walk entirely indoors through the George R. Brown Convention Center, connecting both hotels on the second level. You will find many of the same amenities at the Marriott, as well as a Texas-shaped Lazy River Pool. The room rate at the Marriott Marquis is also $125 per night for singles, doubles, triples, and quads. To book a room, call 1-877-622-3056 after January 1. Again, ask for the NFB convention block. Similarly, the same deposit and cancellation policies apply. The 2023 Convention of the National Federation of the Blind will be a truly exciting and memorable event with an unparalleled program and rededication to the goals and work of our movement. A wide range of seminars for parents of blind children, technology enthusiasts, job seekers, and other groups will kick the week off on Saturday, July 1. Convention registration and registration packet pickup will also open on Saturday. Breakout sessions continue on Sunday along with committee meetings. Monday, July 3, will kick off with the annual meeting, open to all, of the Board of Directors of the National Federation of the Blind. National Division meetings will follow the board meeting that afternoon and evening. General convention sessions will begin on Tuesday, July 4, and continue through the afternoon of Thursday, July 6. Convention ends on a high note with the banquet Thursday evening, so be sure to pack your fancy clothes. The fall of the gavel at the close of banquet will signal convention's adjournment. Remember that, as usual, we need door prizes from state affiliates, local chapters, and individuals. Once again, prizes should be small in size but large in value. Cash, of course, is always appropriate and welcome. As a rule, we ask that prizes of all kinds have a value of at least $25 and not include alcohol. Drawings will occur steadily throughout the convention sessions, and you can anticipate a Texas-sized grand prize to be drawn at the banquet. You may bring door prizes with you to convention or send them in advance to the National Federation of the Blind of Texas at 1600 East Highway 6, Suite 215, 
Alvin, Texas, 77511. The best collection of exhibits featuring new technology, meetings of our special interest groups, committees, and divisions, the most stimulating and provocative program items of any meeting of the blind in the world, the chance to renew friendships in our Federation family, and the unparalleled opportunity to be where the real action is and where decisions are being made. All of these mean you will not want to miss being part of the 2023 National Convention. To assure yourself a room in the headquarters hotel at convention rates, make your reservations early. We plan to see you in Houston in July. Volume 66, Number 6, June 2023, Contents Illustration Money Doesn't Grow on Trees Jacob's Ladder, Hosting Sports Fans in a Rising Career by Jamal Mazrui Transformation in Employment, Smart Partnership to Build the Future Together by Regina Klein Blindness, Handicap or Characteristic by Kenneth Jernigan Blindness, Physical Handicap, Characteristic, Identity, or Something Else by Gary Wonder Gratitude by Curtis Willoughby Creativity is More Accessible Than Meets the Eye by Rashika Kartik. National Federation of the Blind applauds the introduction of the Access Technology Affordability Act in the Senate. Can We Change the World? by Joe Elizabeth Pinto. The Blind Do Lead the Blind by Dr. Jacob Fried. Four leading brands and the National Federation of the Blind join Be My Eyes Virtual Volunteer Corporate Beta Test. Accessible Remote Access with RIM by Carl Belanger and Matt Hackert. Lift Up with Lift Roundup by Patty Chang. Summer Tips for Parents of Blind Students by Lashona Fant. Money Doesn't Grow on Trees. Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, President Riccobono and Len Oliar examine the raised tactile features on the next generation $10 bill. Photo 2, the caption, left to right, Kyle Walls, John Paré, President Mark Riccobono, and Director of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, Len Oliar. It is manufactured by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, BEP. On Thursday, April 13, President Riccobono met with the Director of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, Len Oliar, to discuss the next generation of paper currency in the United States. The meeting was productive. President Riccobono and John Paré were able to preview the upcoming redesign of the $10 bill, scheduled to be released in 2026. We say preview. They were only able to touch the raised tactile feature, nothing else. It was highly secretive. It was wrapped in other paper and Len Oliar walked through the very thoughtful process they've been going through to add this to the paper currency of the United States. This is based a lot on work that they did with us over the last decade. Some of you probably participated in activities at the National Convention and we have urged them to be at our National Convention again this year. They will. We don't know what they'll be able to show at this year's convention because the release of the first bill with raised tactile feature is still a couple years away. But we do believe they will be at the convention. As mentioned in the May presidential release, President Riccobono did offer that the Federation would be happy to run a free samples program for the new $10 bill. They didn't take him up on it, but we're still negotiating. So really great progress on that project. Jacob's Ladder Hosting Sports Fans in a Rising Career by Jamal Mazrui. Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, Jamal Mazrui. Photo 2, the caption, Jacob Struxma. From the editor, 
Thanks to Jamal, we are given an opportunity to see into the life of a blind person who is doing things most of us have never seriously considered. We train for white-collar jobs, but we know that not every person wants to do those for a living. Thanks to Jamal for giving some of his busy time writing this. He is married to Susan, and together they have two daughters. He works for Amazon teaching people how to use this megastore on the web. Enjoy the fruits of his interview and the fine man this article is about. Last year, my supervisor at Amazon mentioned that she recently attended a Seattle Mariners baseball game where one of the staff at the stadium was blind. He helped us find our seats, she said, and it seemed like he was the most knowledgeable person around who could answer questions and give directions. I smiled and replied that, I'm pretty sure that the person you mention is someone I know from the Greater Seattle Chapter of the National Federation of the Blind. The fellow chapter member and friend of mine is Jacob Struxma. I first met him at an NFB meeting in 2016 after my family moved from the Washington, D.C. area to Seattle. I soon learned why Jacob has the reputation of being a transportation guru. It seems that you can give him almost any two addresses in King County, and he will tell you what options are available for traveling between them, whether this involves buses, trains, or walking. Over the years, he has earned nicknames like Transit Dude and Metro Man. Born in Everett, Washington in 1979 and now age 43, Jacob comes from a dairy farming family in the state of Washington. He has three younger brothers. The family is close and his parents still live in the area. Jacob joined the Federation in 1999 and attended his first national convention in Philadelphia in 2001. He became a lifetime member of the Seattle chapter in 2021 and has served as vice president, among other roles. His example convinced me, as well as my wife Susan, to also become lifetime members in 2022. Jacob is a tall man, about 6 foot 3 inches. He travels with probably the tallest cane in Seattle, 69 inches. His cane tap is distinctive in sound, leading folks to joke that, you hear Jacob coming and then you encounter his cane well before he appears in person. Applying aptitudes for understanding layouts and explaining directions, Jacob launched a career in hosting services at major sports arenas in Seattle. His ability to quickly learn the layout of an environment and to helpfully answer questions with precise information have been valuable to such public venues, although persistent job applications and demonstrations were needed to remove all doubt. Over the course of a year, Jacob helped many fans find seats, refreshments, and memorabilia at various sports, music, or other entertainment events. He also processes tickets when they first arrive. His hosting career began in February of 2018 when Jacob joined guest services at the Seattle Mariners baseball stadium. He eventually became a seasonal employee with three companies that deliver support services for large events in the city year-round. Jacob now works regularly for Seattle Mariners baseball at T-Mobile Park, Seattle Seahawks football at Lumen Field, and Seattle Kraken hockey at Climate Pledge Arena. At Lumen Field, he also supports Seattle OL Region Soccer and Seattle Sounders Soccer. At Climate Pledge Arena, he supports Seattle Storm Basketball as well. All three arenas host music concerts in addition. These have included famous talents like Taylor Swift, Pearl Jam, Green Bay, The Who, and the Dave Matthews Band. Comedy shows have featured Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, among others. During the holiday season, a variety show for families includes fancy lights, a scavenger hunt, Santa Claus, and Christmas music. When Jacob works an event, he is typically on his feet from six to eight hours nonstop, except for a couple of short breaks. He finds most aspects of the work environment to be non-visually accessible. 
Some online systems for employees, e.g. an electronic timesheet, have been unnecessarily problematic, as is still too common across industry, unfortunately. As a reasonable accommodation, a supervisor or coworker assists in such cases. Jacob is liked and respected among support staff at Seattle's biggest events. Based on his positive experience, he is helping to recruit other blind people to this line of work. In an occupation that has generally not employed blind people, Jacob shows that a blind person can perform successfully in its integrated, competitive environment. This is someone who is living the life he wants, and he is changing what it means to be blind. Go Jacob! Transformation in Employment Smart Partnership to Build the Future Together by Regina Klein A photo appears on the page, the caption, Regina Klein. From the editor, we are constantly bombarded by messages that suggest that if we don't want to work for someone else, the answer is to be an entrepreneur. If we don't want to face the discrimination that comes from employers not believing we can do a job, the answer is to become an entrepreneur. In this address, a woman who has worked as our legal counsel and has long been an advocate for entrepreneurism talks about how we who are blind can become entrepreneurs and the way all of us in the Federation can support programs to make this easier. Here is what she says. Thank you, Mr. President. Hello and good afternoon, members of the Federation. What a privilege it is to come back here today after being gone and apart for a couple of years. This has a lot of significance to me personally, and I know it has to you. This convention is so much a homecoming, and a homecoming this year during such challenging times that we all have been through. But it does reflect a critical moment to celebrate community and to celebrate the energy that's created by this community in particular. There's potent power in this room. There are ideas and actions in this room that will lift up those that are here and those that are not for the rest of the year and for years to come. Well, I was introduced just now by the president in my role as founder of Enable Ventures and Smart Job, both companies working to close the disability wealth gap and build a robust entrepreneurial ecosystem throughout the disability community, and as I will describe in a minute. As he mentioned, before that, I started working and learning from this community as a lawyer. And it was with absolute pleasure during my time as a trial attorney and senior counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice under the Obama administration that I worked on matters that the NFB has always led on, and that is fighting to advance the rights and interests of workers with disabilities to achieve competitive employment. That means avoiding unnecessary, unjustified segregation. It means being able to leave subminimum wage work when you can and want to work for competitive wages. And as you well know, NFB has always been on the cutting edge of civil rights of workers in the organized blind movement to work in employment 
in a range of jobs to advance the highest expectations of people who are blind, for the full inclusion of the organized blind in work and the economy. I look out today, I see some of my great friends. Eve Hill, I worked with her back at DOJ. She's one of, the, one of the great lawyers in the United States advancing the ADA. Anne Race, she was on stage a little while ago, still at the DOJ advancing civil rights. But that was a time back at the DOJ when we filed the first cases that applied the ADA and the Supreme Court decision in Olmstead to where people with disabilities worked. And it was then that we knew, as we know now, that people with disabilities can thrive in the labor market in a range of opportunities, that there is a recognized right in the United States for people with disabilities to receive the services and supports they need to work in the community. Later in my career, I went on and worked with Eve Hill at, and Dan Goldstein, who's in the audience, and other lawyers here from Brown Goldstein and Levy. Uh, let's hear it for Brown Goldstein and Levy. A law firm truly um, with singularity that has worked hand in glove with the NFB to advance the rights of people with disabilities and people in this community for decades. We worked on matters across the United States with the NFB, advancing the rights of blind workers to avoid unlawful, unnecessary segregation, to be treated equally on the job, to access ladders of opportunity. And that is work that is still carrying on today with the NFB and with these lawyers that have dedicated so much of their lives to making sure that people with disabilities have equal rights. It was just around the start of 2020, however, that, that my work took me in a very interesting and a very different place. I began to assess the sum of these experiences and I was assessing what it meant that I had represented and worked with some of the most talented people I'd ever met in this community, in this room, and in rooms like this around the country. And I began to realize that there were two different realities at play. First, 30 years after the ADA, it remained the case that nearly two-thirds of working-age adults with disabilities are in fact not employed. Second, and this is really important, that there is an abundance of raw innovation, invention, ingenuity reverberating throughout the disability community and the blind community. It's everywhere. Talent is lying everywhere. And it's in this convention hall today. And it sparks the question, it should spark the question in all of us, which is how can we harness that talent to access more, to access more than just the right to be free from discrimination? What additional tools can we use to allow talented people with disabilities to achieve a freedom that works hand in glove with equality, that is economic justice, in the movement for disability rights. 
How do we build upon the equality already achieved in the battles yet to be fought while leveling up to the word that is equity? That which gives people economic opportunities, employment, and greater access to wealth. And I turned, I turned to entrepreneurship to address these questions. Now ask me what entrepreneurship is. To me, it's a prayer to the kind of world you want to live in in the future. It's a prayer that through consistent and dedicated focus, you will into the world. Through the power of a single idea, you will it into reality, even despite the odds, even despite the odds that it might not succeed. The history of successful entrepreneurs is replete with examples of people who have exceeded, succeeded in spite of the odds, in spite of great barriers. They've been excluded from traditional avenues of employment. As the founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, wrote in a 2013 op-ed about the subject of immigration, Reid Hoffman said, immigration is pure entrepreneurship. You see, you leave behind everything familiar to start somewhere new. To succeed, you develop alliances. You must acquire skills. You will have to improvise on occasion. That's a bold proposition, he said. Well, like the experience of immigration, so many of the entrepreneurs with disabilities that I meet every day are fantastically situated for the experience of entrepreneurship. Each day they battle and bust through barriers in a world that was so often not designed with them in mind. Each day they're written out of certain opportunities, not on their own merit, but because of the biases inherent in others in their world. It causes them to develop alternative paths, new alliances, new and additional skills. Their lives are one of inventing workarounds, hacks, better ways. And they are uncompromising in their belief that they can and will live in a world where the experience of disability is equated with problem-solving, innovation, and a better way. I founded SmartJob in 2020, and this year in 2022, partnered with Jim Sorensen, a world-renowned impact investor of the Sorensen Impact Platform, to create Enable Ventures, a market-rate venture capital firm. Our job is to find, our job is to find the most talented entrepreneurs with disabilities in the world who are leveraging the disability experience as an asset. And in their businesses, they are creating inclusively designed products and services. And they're launching startups that will increase the employment of people with disabilities. We connect these entrepreneurs with funding to allow their companies and enterprises to grow, to scale, to be sustainable. These entrepreneurs and companies are bringing 
new products to the market that will improve the lives of themselves and others and the lives of people with disabilities. In our estimation, by backing and supporting these innovators and entrepreneurs, we are working, and we need you to help us. We are working on building smarter jobs. We don't need to build any smart people. We've got them here. We've got them everywhere. We don't need to get more talented. We have talent here. We have talent everywhere. What we need to do is change the way we design work. And there is a rising class of entrepreneurs with disabilities around the world that will do that, that will reimagine work for everyone. Now you're saying, my friend Tracy over there gives me a hard time from the NFB. Let's just hear it for Tracy Soforenko over in Virginia. He is always giving me a hard time. He said, Gina, you're too much Wall Street, not enough Main Street. You're too Harvard, not enough rock and roll. All right, Tracy, here's some regular language about what we do. Is that all right? Okay, here we go. This is what we're working on, you guys. We are providing our support to entrepreneurs and early stage companies that are event inventing new wayfinding solutions, next generation braille displays, digital training and hiring platforms designed to screen in not screen out. You heard Anne Raich from the USDOJ. They're worried about technologies coming along that are AI-driven, that screen workers out. We're looking for the technologies that actually intend, are designed to screen workers in. We're backing entrepreneurs with disabilities with powerful ideas who are seeking funding in order to grow and scale the kind of companies that will hire other people with disabilities, that will promote accessibility in their supply chains, that will be designed with the community in mind from the beginning. It means that SmartJob is finding and supporting a global community of disability tech accelerators, small business incubators, entrepreneurship programs that provide entrepreneurs with those critical skills, the critical skills, support, and information they need to be successful on their entrepreneurial journeys. You know, some of the fastest growing jobs in our economy today are in the technology sector. And that's an industry where people with disabilities, including people who are blind, are absolutely underrepresented. It is estimated that hundreds of thousands of jobs that exist today will be gone by 2030 because of the lightning speed of innovation, automation, and because of this increasing digital divide. People, have any, people who have unequal access to technology will be the hardest hit with these labor force trends. And as you know, here we are in 2022 and the internet remains so often inaccessible to blind people 32 years after the enactment of the ADA. To solve for these problems, in addition to the good work, the profound work of the NFB and its crusade for civil rights with so many talented lawyers, to solve for this problem, SmartJob is building relationships. We're building a lot of them. We're building relationships with coding, digital accessibility, and other technology training boot camps. We're trying to connect workers with new inroads into that tech industry. 
We're working to pave alternative and accessible learning and training paths right into the technology sector to drive inclusion into the heart of tech by making it easier for tech to meet our talented workforce, the, the members of the National Federation of the Blind and people across the disability community who can and want to work in tech and can bring their talents to bear on the next generation of technology. So I've got to tell you, since 2020, I've met with hundreds of entrepreneurs with disabilities from around the world. We're talking about inventors and dreamers and founders and makers. They're leveraging the experience of disability as an asset to business and as an asset to the world. And they're expanding the disability market and the general market, the general consumer market as they're doing it. You might ask yourself today, if you're not an entrepreneur, why you should care about this. Why should you care about this? What, is it, what does it have to do with your life? Today, entrepreneurs throughout the world are working on solutions. They're working on solutions that you'll buy at the store. They're working, and many of them are blind, are working on solutions that will remove barriers to people with disabilities' lives. That, that's true, but the right solutions need funding to scale in order to be sustainable, to reach you. They need funding in order to get off the ground, to hit a water distribution, to have a lower price point, to make it, to make the sustainability of those products, they need sustained funding. And they also need something else that's a magic ingredient, which is that they need what we call in investing product market fit. They need feedback and insight and partnerships like the kind that we have forged with, under the leadership of President Riccobono with the National Federation of the Blind to know what is the user experience? What do blind people think about this product? What, do, what does the community need to be built? Who in the community wants to build it? Uh, and so we are working on all these issues together as we are looking to uh, support and grow companies. We're also looking to support and grow the interests of consumers as to what they need. And you know what you need and you, and, and you know what you'd like to see have on the shelf in the future. When entrepreneurs with disabilities and those co-designing with them have more funding, when they have more support, when they have more guidance, consumers do have a wider array of choices in their lives and that levels the playing field. And on this journey, as I mentioned, and I really wanna underscore this, the NFB has been an indispensable partner. This should be of little surprise is the NFB has been at the forefront of not only, as we mentioned, advancing employment for much of its 80 plus year history, but the NFB has been at the edge, the cutting edge of advancing innovation for all of its history. Certainly blind innovation since the very beginning has very directly influenced the history of innovation writ large in the world. You can draw a straight line from the invention of the typewriter to text-to-voice to audiobooks. Many of the component features of your iPhone in your pocket 
That started in the organized blind community. That started with blind innovators. That started here. That started in the community. Those innovations changed the world. They changed the world. And I, I know that your president knows that, NFB knows that, and looking out into the future, they know that there are innovators and inventors in the audience here today across this country who will create the next generation of solutions in the next 50 years. We are very excited by this partnership and the ability to announce two special opportunities that are coming online right now in this partnership between SmartJob and the NFB. We have supported and brought to the community Synergies Works. It's a, a small micro-business incubator. You might, this is Tracy again. What does, what does incubator mean, Gina? Well, it is a place where entrepreneurs can receive support for their ideas, end-to-end -end support, mentorship, networks, the opportunity to meet with coaches about their business ideas, opportunity to receive support in accounting and marketing and understanding how to reach consumers and test product. This is the opportunity how to make a business plan. We're bringing this online. Uh, and the opportunity is currently open to members of the National Federation of the Blind. Yep. And the, the, the other thing we have to tell you is that we're bringing online, uh, thanks to the folks at Include LLC, a how to raise venture capital course, how to get funding from angel investors and venture capitalists for great business ideas here in the, in the NFB community. That course is opening right now as well. We've got lots of opportunities and we hope that we'll see many of you participating in these opportunities as we move forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. Blindness, handicap or characteristic, by Kenneth Jernigan. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Kenneth Jernigan. From the editor. The speech that follows was first delivered at the Banquet of the National Federation of the Blind Convention in 1963. It has sparked a great deal of discussion, but many of us who are federationists tend to regard blindness primarily as a characteristic and take as one of our major responsibilities providing the training and opportunity that will keep it from being more in the lives of the blind. As you read this speech, keep in mind that some of the phraseology might be different from what we would use today. If we cannot read words written a half-century ago without objecting to the fact that they are not the words we might use today, we have to close the door on much of history, what it has to teach, and the times in which it was written. People tell me that we should rewrite some of our literature to modernize it. I have no quibble with the concept, but I do make two observations. One is that the newer pieces do not need to replace what was pioneering at the time it was written. My second observation is that, sadly, many who have suggested we need newer literature have not set themselves to the task of writing it, even when promised every opportunity to work with a willing editor to bring a new piece of Federation material into being. I hope people who have not read this before will enjoy it, 
and that those of us who have will appreciate the opportunity to stroll down memory lane. In whichever group you fall, please read the article that follows and add your voice to the dialogue. It has been wisely observed that philosophy bakes no bread. It has with equal wisdom been observed that without a philosophy, no bread is baked. Let me talk to you then of philosophy, my philosophy concerning blindness, and in a broader sense, my philosophy concerning handicaps in general. One prominent authority recently said, quote, loss of sight is a dying. When in the full current of his sighted life, blindness comes on a man, it is the end, the death of that sighted life. It is superficial, if not naive, to think of blindness as a blow to the eyes only, to sight only. It is a destructive blow to the self-image of a man, a blow almost to his being itself. End of quote. This is one view, a view held by a substantial number of people in the world today. But it is not the only view. In my opinion, it is not the correct view. What is blindness? Is it a dying no one is likely to disagree with me if I say that blindness, first of all, is a characteristic. But a great many people will disagree when I go on to say that blindness is only a characteristic. It is nothing more or less than that. It is nothing more special or more peculiar or more terrible than that suggests. When we understand the nature of blindness as a characteristic, a normal characteristic like hundreds of others with which each of us must live, we shall better understand the real need to be met by services to the blind, as well as the false needs which should not be met. By definition, a characteristic, any characteristic, is a limitation. A white house, for example, is a limited house. It cannot be green or blue or red. It is limited to being white. Likewise, every characteristic, those we regard as strengths as well as those we regard as weaknesses, is a limitation. Each one freezes us to some extent into a mold. Each restricts to some degree the range of possibility or flexibility, and very often of opportunity as well. Blindness is such a limitation. Are blind people more limited than others? Let us make a simple comparison. Take the sighted person with an average mind. Something not too hard to locate. Take a blind person with a superior mind. Something not impossible to locate and then make all the other characteristics of these two persons equal, something which certainly is impossible. Now, which of the two is more limited? It depends, of course, entirely on what you want them to do. If you are choosing upsides for baseball, then the blind man is more limited, that is, he is handicapped. If you are seeking someone to teach history or science or to figure out your income tax, then the sighted person is more limited or handicapped. Many human characteristics are obvious limitations. Others are not so obvious. Poverty, the lack of material means, is one of the most obvious. Ignorance, the lack of knowledge or education, is another. Old age, the lack of youth and vigor, is yet another. Blindness, the lack of eyesight, is still another. In all of these cases, the limitations are apparent, or they seem to be. But let us look at some other common characteristics which do not seem limiting. Take the very opposite of old age, youth. Is age a limitation in the case of a youth of 20? Indeed it is. For a person of 20 will not be considered for most responsible positions. 
especially supervisory and leadership positions. He may be entirely mature, fully capable, in every way the best qualified applicant for the job. Even so, his age will bar him from employment. He will be classified as too green and immature to handle the responsibility. And even if he were to land the position, others on the job would almost certainly resent being supervised by one so young. The characteristic of being 20 is definitely a limitation. The same holds true for any other age. Take age 50, which many regard as the prime of life. The man of 50 does not have the physical vigor he possessed at 20, and indeed most companies will not start a new employee at that age. The telephone company, for example, has a general prohibition against hiring anybody over age 35. But it is interesting to note that the United States Constitution has a prohibition against having anyone under 35 run for president. The moral is plain. Any age carries its built-in limitations. Let us take another unlikely handicap, not that of ignorance, but its exact opposite. Can it be said that education is ever a handicap? The answer is definitely yes. In the agency which I head, I would not hire Albert Einstein under any circumstances if he were today alive and available. His fame, other people would continually flock to the agency and prevent us from doing our work, and his intelligence, he would be bored to madness by the routine of most of our jobs, would be too severe as limitations. Here is an actual case in point. Some time ago, a vacancy occurred on the library staff at the Iowa Commission for the Blind. Someone was needed to perform certain clerical duties and to take charge of shelving and checking talking book records. After all applicants had been screened, the final choice came down to two. Applicant A had a college degree, was seemingly alert, and clearly of more than average intelligence. Applicant B had a high school diploma, no college, was of average intelligence, and possessed only moderate initiative. I hired applicant B. Why? Because I suspected that applicant A would regard the work as beneath him, would soon become bored with its undemanding assignments, and would leave as soon as something better came along. I would then have to find and train another employee. On the other hand, I felt that applicant B would consider the work interesting and even challenging, that he was thoroughly capable of handling the job, and that he would be not only an excellent but a permanent employee. In fact, he has worked out extremely well. In other words, in the situation that I've mentioned, the characteristic of education, the possession of a college degree, was a limitation and a handicap. Even above average intelligence was a limitation, and so was a high level of initiative. There is a familiar bureaucratic label for this unusual disadvantage. It is the term overqualified. Even the overqualified, it appears, can be underprivileged. This should be enough to make the point, which is that if blindness is a limitation, and indeed it is, it is so in quite the same way as innumerable other characteristics. I believe indeed that blindness has no more importance than any of a hundred other characteristics and that the average blind person is able to perform the average job in the average career or calling, provided, and it is a large proviso, he is given the training and the opportunity. Often when I have advanced this proposition, I have been met with the response, but you can't look at it that way. Just consider what you might have done if you had been sighted and still had all the other capacities you now possess. Not so, I reply. 
We do not compete against what we might have been, but only against other people as they are, with their combinations of strengths and weaknesses, handicaps and limitations. If we are going down that track, why not ask me what I might have done if I had been born with Roosevelt's persuasive personality, Rockefeller's money, the brains of Einstein, the physique of the young Joe Lewis? And speaking of Franklin Roosevelt, do I need to remind anyone in passing that FDR was severely handicapped physically? I wonder if anybody ever said to him, Mr. President, just consider what you might have done if you had not had polio. Others have said to me, but I formerly had my sight, so I know what I'm missing. To which one might reply, and I was formerly 20, so I know what I'm missing. Our characteristics are constantly changing, and we are forever acquiring new experiences, limitations, and assets. We do not compete against what we formerly were, but against other people as they now are. In a recent issue of the New Outlook for the Blind, in a column called Hindsight, Dr. Walter Stromer, a blinded veteran who is now a very successful college professor in the state of Iowa, puts forward a notion of blindness radically different from this. He sets the limitations of blindness apart from all others and makes them unique. Having done this, he can say that all other human characteristics, strengths and weaknesses, belong in one category, and with regard to them, the blind and the sighted individual are just about equal. But the blind person also has the additional and unique limitation of blindness. Therefore, there is really nothing he can do quite as well as the sighted person. And he can continue to hold his job only because there are charity and goodness in the world. What Dr. Stromer does not observe is that the same distinction he has made regarding blindness could be made with equal plausibility with respect to any of a dozen, perhaps a hundred other characteristics. For example, suppose we distinguish intelligence from all other traits as uniquely different. Then the man with above 125 IQ is just about the same as the man with below 125, except for intelligence. Therefore, the college professor with less than 125 IQ can really do nothing as well as the man with more than 125 and can continue to hold his job only because there are charity and goodness in the world. Are we going to assume, says Dr. Stromer, that all blind people are so wonderful in all other areas that they easily make up for any limitations imposed by loss of sight? I think not. But why, I ask, single out the particular characteristic of blindness? We might just as well specify some other. For instance, are we going to assume that all people with less than 125 IQ are so wonderful in all other areas that they easily make up for any limitations imposed by lack of intelligence? I think not. This consideration brings us to the problem of terminology and semantics, and thereby to the heart of the matter of blindness as a characteristic. The assumption that the limitations of blindness are so much more severe than others that they warrant being singled out for special definition is built into the very warp and woof of our language and our psychology. Blindness conjures up a condition of unrelieved disaster, something much more terrible and dramatic than other limitations. Moreover, blindness is a conspicuously visible limitation and there are not so many blind people around that there is a danger of becoming accustomed to it or taking it for granted. If all of those in our midst who possess an IQ of under 125 exhibited, say, green stripes on their faces, 
I suspect that they would begin to be regarded as inferior to the non-striped, and that there would be immediate and tremendous discrimination. When someone says to a blind person, you know, you do things so well that I forget you are blind, I simply think of you as being like anybody else. Is that really a compliment? Suppose one of us went to France and someone said, you do things so well that I forget you're an American and I simply think of you as being like anybody else. Would it be a compliment? Of course, the blind person must not wear a chip on his shoulder or allow himself to become angry or emotionally upset. He should be courteous and he should accept the statement as the compliment it is meant to be. But he should understand that it is really not complimentary. In reality, it says, it is normal for blind people to be inferior and limited, different, and much less able than the rest of us. Of course, you are still a blind person, and still much more limited than I, but you have compensated for it so well that I almost forget that you are inferior to me. The social attitudes about blindness are all pervasive. Not only do they affect the sighted, but also the blind as well. This is one of the most troublesome problems which we have to face. Public attitudes about the blind too often become the attitudes of the blind. The blind tend to see themselves as others see them. They too often accept the public view of their limitations and thereby do much to make those limitations a reality. Several years ago, Dr. Jacob Fried, at that time a young teacher of sociology, and now head of the Jewish Braille Institute of America, performed an interesting experiment. He gave a test in photograph identification to Negro and white students at the university where he was teaching. There was one photograph of a Negro woman in a living room of a home of culture, well furnished with paintings, sculpture, books, and flowers. Asked to identify the person in the photograph, the students said she was a cleaning woman, housekeeper, cook, laundress, servant, domestic, and mammy. The revealing insight is that the Negro students made the same identification as the white students. The woman was Mary McLeod Bethune, the most famous Negro woman of her time, founder and president of Bethune-Cookman College, who held a top post during the Franklin Roosevelt administration, and a person of brilliance and prestige in the world of higher education. What this incident tells us is that education like nature abhors a vacuum and that when members of a minority group do not have correct and complete information about themselves, they accept the stereotypes of the majority group, even when they are false and unjust. Even today, in the midst of the great civil rights debate and protest, one wonders how many Negroes would make that traditional and stereotyped identification of the photograph. Similarly with the blind, the public image is everywhere dominant. This is the explanation for the attitude of those blind persons who are ashamed to carry a white cane or who try to bluff sight which they do not possess. Although great progress is now being made, there are still many people, sighted as well as blind, who believe that blindness is not altogether respectable. The blind person must devise alternative techniques to do many things which he would do with sight if he had normal vision. It will be observed that I say alternative, not substitute techniques, for the word substitute connotes inferiority, and the alternative techniques employed by the blind person need not be inferior to visual techniques. In fact, some are superior. Of course, some are inferior, and some are equal. In this connection, it is interesting to consider the matter of flying. In comparison with the birds, man begins at a disadvantage. He cannot fly. 
He has no wings. He is handicapped. But he sees the birds flying, and he longs to do likewise. He cannot choose the normal bird-like method, so he begins to devise alternative techniques. In his jet airplanes, he now flies higher, farther, and faster than any bird which has ever existed. If he had possessed wings, the airplane would probably never have been devised, and the inferior wing-flapping method would still be in general use. This matter of our irrational images and stereotypes with regard to blindness was brought sharply home to me some time ago during the course of a rehabilitation conference in Little Rock, Arkansas. I found myself engaged in a discussion with a well-known leader in the field of work with the blind who holds quite different views from those I have been advancing. The error in my argument about blindness as a characteristic he advised me was that blindness is not in the range of normal characteristics, and therefore its limitations are radically different from those of other characteristics falling within the normal range. If a normal characteristic is simply one possessed by a majority in a group, then it is not normal to have a black skin in America, or for that matter, a white skin in the world at large. It is not normal to have red hair or to be over six feet tall. If, on the other hand, a normal characteristic is simply what this authority or somebody else defines as being normal, then we have a circular argument indeed, one which gets us nowhere. In this same discussion, I put forward the theory that a man who was sighted and of average means and who had all other characteristics in common with a blind man of considerable wealth would be less mobile than the blind man. I had been arguing that there were alternative techniques, not substitute, for doing those things which one would do with sight if he had normal vision. The authority I have already mentioned, as well as several others, had been contending that there was no real, adequate substitute for sight in traveling about. I told the story of a wealthy blind man I know who goes to Hawaii or some other place each year and who hires sighted attendants and is much more mobile than any sighted person I know of ordinary means. After all of the discussion and the fact that I thought I had conveyed some understanding of what I was saying, a participant in the conference said, as if he thought he were really making a telling point, wouldn't you admit that the wealthy man in question would be even more mobile if he had his sight? Which brings us to the subject of services to the blind, and more exactly, of their proper scope and direction. There are, as I see it, four basic types of services now being provided for blind persons by public or private agencies and volunteer groups in this country today. They are, one, services based on the theory that blindness is uniquely different from other characteristics and that it carries with it permanent inferiority and severe limitations upon activity. Two, services aimed at teaching the blind person a new and constructive set of attitudes about blindness based on the premise that the prevailing social attitudes assimilated involuntarily by the blind person are mistaken in content and destructive in effect. Three, services aimed at teaching alternative techniques and skills related to blindness. And four, services not specifically related to blindness, but to other characteristics such as old age, lack of education, etc., which are nevertheless labeled as services to the blind and brought in under the generous umbrella of the service program. An illustration of the assumptions underlying the first of these four types of services is the statement I quoted earlier, which begins, loss of sight is a dying. 
At the Little Rock Conference, which I have already mentioned, the man who made this statement elaborated on the tragic metaphor by pointing out the eye is a sexual symbol and that accordingly the man who has not eyes is not a whole man. He cited the play Oedipus Rex as proof of his contention that the eye is a sexual symbol. I believe that this misses the whole point of the classic tragedy. Like many moderns, the Greeks considered the severest possible punishment to be the loss of sight. Oedipus committed a mortal sin. Unknowingly, he had killed his father and married his mother. Therefore, his punishment must be correspondingly great. But that is just what his self-imposed blindness was, a punishment, not a sex symbol. But this view not only misses the point of Oedipus Rex, it misses the point of blindness, and in so doing it misses the point of services intended to aid the blind. For according to this view, what the blind person needs most desperately is the help of a psychiatrist, of the kind so prominently in evidence at several of the orientation and adjustment centers for the blind throughout the country. According to this view, what the blind person most needs is not travel training, but therapy. He will be taught to accept his limitations as insurmountable and his difference from others as unbridgeable. He will be encouraged to adjust to his painful station as a second-class citizen and discouraged from any thought of breaking and entering the first-class compartment. Moreover, all of this will be done in the name of teaching him, quote, independence and, quote, a realistic approach to his blindness. The two competing types of services for the blind, categories one and two on my list of four, with their underlying conflict of philosophy, may perhaps be clarified by a rather fanciful analogy. All of us recall the case of the Jews in Nazi Germany. Suddenly in the 1930s, the German Jew was told by his society that he was a handicapped person, that he was inferior to other Germans simply by virtue of being a Jew. Given this social fact, what sort of adjustment services what might we have offered to the victim of Jewishness? I suggest that there are two alternatives, matching categories one and two on my list of four. First, since he has been a normal individual until quite recently, it is, of course, quite a shock, or trauma as the modern lingo has it, for him to learn that he is permanently and constitutionally inferior to others and can only engage in a limited range of activities. He will therefore require a psychiatrist to give him counseling and therapy and to reconcile him to his lot. He must adjust to his handicap and learn to live with the fact that he is not a whole man. Of course, things could be worse. He might be a blind Jew. If he is realistic, he may even manage to be happy. He can be taken to an adjustment center or put into a workshop where he may learn a variety of simple crafts and curious occupations suitable to Jews. Again, it should be noted that all of this will be done in the name of teaching him how to live independently as a Jew. That is one form of adjustment training, category one of my four types. On the other hand, if there are those around who reject the premise that Jewishness equals inferiority, another sort of adjustment service may be undertaken. We might begin by firing the psychiatrist. His services will be available in his own private office for Jews as for non-Jews whenever they develop emotional or mental troubles. We will not want the psychiatrist because the Nazi psychiatrist likely has the same misconceptions about Jews as the rest of his society. 
we might continue then by scrapping the Jew trades, the menial routines of the workbench which offer no competition to the normal world outside. We will take the emphasis off of resignation or of fun and games. We will not work to make the Jew happy in his isolation and servitude, but rather to make him discontented with them. We will make of him not a conformist, but a rebel. And so it is with the blind. There are vast differences in the services offered by various agencies and volunteer groups doing work with the blind throughout the country today. At the Little Rock Conference, this came up repeatedly. When a blind person comes to an adjustment center, what kind of training do you give him and why? In Iowa and some other centers, the contention is that he is a responsible individual and that the emphasis should be on his knowing what he can do. Some of the centers represented at Little Rock contended that he needed psychiatric help and counseling and that the emphasis should be on the center personnel's knowing what he could do. I asked them whether they thought services in a center were more like those given by a hospital or like those given by a law school. In a hospital, the person is a patient. This is, by the way, a term coming to be used more and more in rehabilitation today. The doctors decide whether the patient needs an operation and what medication he should have. In reality, the patient makes few of his own decisions. Will the doctor let him do this or that? In a law school, on the other hand, the student assumes responsibility for getting to his own classes and organizing his own work. He plans his own career, seeking advice to the extent that he feels the need for it. If he plans unwisely, he pays the price. But it is his life. This does not mean that he does not need the services of the law school. He probably will become friends with the professors and will discuss legal matters with them and socialize with them. From some, he will seek counsel and advice concerning personal matters. More and more, he will come to be treated as a colleague. Not so the patient. What does he know of drugs and medication? Some of the centers represented at the Little Rock Conference were shocked that we at the Iowa Commission for the Blind socialize with our students and have them to our homes. They believe that this threatened what they took to be the professional relationship. Our society has so steeped itself in false notions concerning blindness that it is most difficult for people to understand the concept of blindness as a characteristic and for them to understand the services needed by the blind. As a matter of fact, in one way or another, the whole point of all I have been saying is simply this. Blindness is neither a dying nor a psychological crippling. It need not cause a disintegration of personality, and the stereotype which underlies this view is no less destructive when it presents itself in the garb of modern science than it was when it appeared in the ancient raiment of superstition and witchcraft. Throughout the world, but especially in this country, we are today in the midst of a vast transition with respect to our attitudes about blindness and the whole concept of what handicaps are. We are reassessing and reshaping our ideas. In this process, the professionals in the field cannot play a lone hand. It is a cardinal principle of our free society that the citizen public will hold the balance of decision. In my opinion, it is fortunate that this is so, for professionals can become limited in their thinking and committed to outworn programs and ideas. The general public must be the balance staff the ultimate weigher of values and setter of standards. 
in order that the public may perform this function with reason and wisdom, it is the duty of each of us to see that the new ideas receive the broadest possible dissemination. But even more important, we must examine ourselves to see that our own minds are free from prejudice and preconception. Blindness, Physical Handicap, Characteristic, Identity, or Something Else, by Gary Wonder. A photo appears on the page, the caption, Gary Wonder. Almost 50 years ago, Dr. Kenneth Jernigan wrote an essay entitled Blindness, Handicap or Characteristic. His assertion seemed revolutionary at the time, his argument being that blindness was more a characteristic than a handicap, more a nuisance and an inconvenience than the tragic condition it was so often portrayed to be. I first saw the article when a blind professor for whom I was working asked me to read and comment about it because he found it intriguing but wasn't quite certain how he felt about the proposition. Being a relatively new member of the National Federation of the Blind at that time, I knew that I admired Kenneth Jernigan, but my father had always called me visually handicapped, and I wasn't quite certain about whether I could get behind rejecting that label. Certainly what President Jernigan wrote was moving and articulate, but even as a young college student, I knew that this wasn't the test as to whether or not the proposition was true. Is the answer truly binary? As I experienced more of life and read Federation literature, I became much more comfortable with the idea that blindness was indeed a characteristic. I found that I did not have to reject the assertion that sometimes it was also a handicap, though either or is very often the kind of proposition we present in trying to figure out how to put major pieces of the puzzle of life together. Believing that the world is made up of only round pegs and square pegs, and deciding where to put the pieces is often a cause of unnecessary conflict, and in my life, this has too often resulted in my trying to impose my perceptions as making up the reality of the world. Although we clearly refer to blindness as one of many characteristics and not the characteristic that defines us, this doesn't really address the issue of what part it plays in identity. Its role in my life and the lives of others was next brought top of mind when I attended a conference on bioethics at the invitation of Dr. Adrian Ash. She was a renowned bioethicist, a scholar, and a prominent figure in advancing civil rights for people with disabilities, and particularly those of us who are blind. One of the topics discussed was whether one would choose to reverse or eliminate their disability if such were possible. I had never seriously put much mental energy into the question because I had long since come to regard my blindness, as they say in the law, permanent and irreversible. It seems to me that those two words are the same, but I've read them so often that they just seem to go together. The proposition being advanced by some at the conference was that to wish for or to embrace a cure was to admit that one was not happy with themselves and willing to throw away a foundational part of their identity. While I certainly believed then and believe now that blindness has played a major part in shaping my identity, I had never really considered the possibility of regaining sight as suggesting that I was unhappy as a blind person and that blindness was something I did not like about myself. One question that occurred to me during the conference was whether any disability I might encounter would immediately become part of my identity. I have to believe that most people would consider me crazy if I broke my leg, but refused to have it fixed on the assumption that it would be to reject a new one. Admitting what I have gotten by being blind. I admit that blindness has shaped me in some positive ways, such as getting me a free college education, helping me to become a problem solver by thinking out of the box, exposing me to people I likely would never have met had I not moved from my small town and the homogenous group of people who lived there. 
Had it not been for blindness, I doubt I would have met every member of the Missouri Congressional Delegation. It is likely, like my father and my siblings, I might continue to be one of the alienated who think of themselves as the powerless little guy. Be careful what you wish for. A friend of mine was told by his surgeon that a cornea transplant would restore most or all of his vision. He had been blind since birth, but at an earlier point in his life had had significantly more vision. He believed his doctor was offering a wonderful opportunity, took it, and was pleasantly surprised to realize that his vision was so improved that he could read the newspaper. After a bit of celebrating, he took a much lower profile because, apparently for the first time, he thought through what it would mean to no longer be blind. He was part of the Randolph Shepard vending program, a reasonably successful manager who liked the work and desperately needed the income. He was also a recipient of Missouri's blind pension and of the monthly check provided through his Social Security Disability Insurance benefit. Like most of us, his household budget and him spending about as much as he took in, and the realization that he would lose all of this income, was bone-chilling for him. So this temporarily sighted man decided to no longer share with the world this newfound blessing, and for years he sweated about the possibility that he might be found out, and wrestled with his concept of being a truth-telling man, and the consequences that truth would mean for a person who was no longer young enough to reasonably start out on a new career path. We, his friends, who would have been quick to expose fraud if we saw a person who had always had vision trying to take advantage of blindness programs, were silent. We too were holding our breath, knowing he was breaking the law, but wondering what we would do if placed in the same circumstance. Would I gamble on sight? Let us dismiss for a moment all of the practical issues involved in whether or not I could ever really see, and for this purpose, let us talk about philosophy, self-concept, and identity. Some of you may have read the book Crashing Through by Mike May. If you haven't, spoiler alert. He could see until about the age of three, went through his life amassing many accomplishments as a blind person, felt good about himself, was offered the opportunity to regain vision, and had to wrestle with the idea of whether or not to do it. After all of the soul-searching, his decision came down to this. I'm happy as a blind guy. I've done most everything I want to do but the things that have brought me the most joy in life have involved adventure and new activities. What could be more of an adventure than figuring out what it is like to see? If I have accurately summarized what Mike said and felt, there isn't much more I have to say. I do not believe I would be selling out myself or other blind people. I do not believe I would be running from a life that has frustrated me with failure after failure. I do not believe I would be turning my back on friends I consider family. Gaining truly usable vision is a highly questionable proposition given what we now know about the plasticity of the brain and needing to learn to see at a fairly early age, but I think that in my soon-to-be retirement, I might just be a chauffeur for blind people. It wouldn't hurt me at all to see the money flowing the other way, and I would be assured of writers who were interesting, informative, and able to think outside the box. For those of you who remember my little essay on controlling the car, this rideshare driver would give full control of the electric windows and the car radio to his passengers. Would I like to see a sunrise, a sunset, the stars at night, the flames coming out of a rocket as it heads toward space? You bet I would. Would I like to learn what is special about the smile of the Mona Lisa? Why not? Would I like to learn the magic of converting a two-dimensional drawing into something that looks like a horse running across the prairie? Yes, not just for the beauty of the horse and the prairie, but for the whole idea that it can be displayed two-dimensionally and be meaningful. 
I grant that there are other mysteries in life that are probably more important, and I grant that they are also beyond my ability to comprehend, let alone solve. But the fact that I do not have most of the things I put on this list doesn't mean that I have to be defensive and say that I don't care anything about them. Neither do I have to give them so much bandwidth that they get in the way of my enjoying the beautiful life I have and the wonderful opportunities I've been blessed to enjoy and that are arguably more important. Why this article? One of the things I most hope for when we publish an issue of the Braille Monitor is that it will get response. It is fun to write my thoughts, but for me, the real challenge in life isn't just getting to say what I think. It is prompting others to say what they think and then engaging in a genuine attempt to understand. Please write in response to this article and the one that comes above it. I believe that Rashika Kardik would appreciate responses to the moving speech she gave in a TED Talk that also appears in this issue. The magazine belongs to you. Please take ownership of it and let your voice be heard. Gratitude by Curtis Willoughby A photo appears on the page, the caption, Curtis Willoughby. From the editor, Curtis Willoughby has been a real pioneer, being the first blind electrical engineer I know. Throughout his career, he has remained a steadfast federationist, even given the tremendous work his jobs have required. Now he wishes to say thank you for one of the things we have done for him. When one becomes eligible for Social Security disability benefits, regardless if he draws them, it should make a difference in the calculation of his retirement benefits, but never does this happen without appeals. Back in 2001, I retired from my employment and remembered that I should be eligible for a special Social Security benefit that was created in the 1960s or 1970s. I contacted Jim Gashel in the NFB National Office and determined that it would be worth a lot of money if I followed up on it. With Jim's help, I requested an administrative review and then an appeal, which are required. These always resulted in denials. This is because the Social Security Administration carefully left out of the manual the existence of this rule, though it was in the regulations. Jim then got me in touch with a couple of lawyers in Virginia who had worked on some other cases for us. These folks took my case through the next steps in the internal Social Security review process. After that, it was necessary to take the case to the federal district court. This is where Scott Labar comes in. Scott took my case to the federal district court, which ruled in my favor. I will always be indebted to Scott, who did such a good job on my case. The Social Security Payment Office tried anew to get the Social Security Appeals Council to take the case, but they sat on it long enough that I won because they sat on it so long. It took until about 2009, but my Social Security income has been much higher, retroactive to 2001. Thank you, Scott, Jim, and the NFB for your help. We need your help. Very soon after I went blind, I went to my first convention of the National Federation of the Blind. Though, as a six-year-old, I was not scared about my future as a blind person. Learning about the NFB and going to conventions showed me tons of independent blind people who I could look up to real-life superheroes that I could aspire to be like. Abigail Blind children, students, and adults are making powerful strides in education and leadership every day across the United States, but we need to continue helping kids like Abigail. For more than 80 years, the National Federation of the Blind has worked to transform the dreams of hundreds of thousands of blind people into reality. With support from individuals like you, we can continue to provide powerful programs and critical resources now and for decades to come. We hope you will plan to be a part of our enduring movement 
by including the National Federation of the Blind in your charitable giving and in your estate planning. It is easier than you think. With your help, the NFB will continue to give blind children the gift of literacy through Braille, mentor young people like Abigail, promote independent travel by providing free, long white canes to blind people in need, develop dynamic educational projects and programs to show blind youth that science and math careers are within their reach, deliver hundreds of accessible newspapers and magazines to provide blind people the essential information necessary to be actively involved in their communities. Offer aids and appliances that help seniors losing vision maintain their independence. Below are just a few of the many tax-deductible ways you can show your support of the National Federation of the Blind. Lift Roundup. By visiting the menu, choosing Donate, and selecting the National Federation of the Blind, you commit to giving to the National Federation of the Blind with each ride. Vehicle Donation Program. We accept donated vehicles, including cars, trucks, boats, motorcycles, or recreational vehicles. Just call 855-659-9314 toll-free, and a representative can make arrangements to pick up your donation. We can also answer any questions you have. General Donation General donations help support the ongoing programs of the NFB and the work to help blind people live the lives they want. You can call 410-659-9314 extension 2430 to give by phone. Give online with a credit card or through the mail with check or money order. Visit our Ways to Give page at https colon slash slash nfb.org slash give. Pre-authorized contributions. Through the pre-authorized contribution, PAC program, supporters sustain the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind by making recurring monthly donations by direct withdrawal of funds from a checking account or a charge to a credit card. To enroll, call 877-NFB-2PAC or fill out our PAC donation form, https colon slash slash www.nfb.org slash PAC. Plan to leave a legacy. The National Federation of the Blind Legacy Society, our Dream Maker Circle, honors and recognizes the generosity and imagination of members and special friends who have chosen to leave a legacy through a will or other planned giving option. You can join the DreamMaker Circle in a myriad of ways. Percentage or Fixed Sum of Assets You can specify that a percentage or a fixed sum of your assets or property goes to the National Federation of the Blind in your will, trust, pension, IRA, life insurance policy, brokerage account, or other accounts. Payable on Death POD Account You can name the National Federation of the Blind as the beneficiary on a Payable on Death POD account through your bank. You can turn any checking or savings account into a POD account. This is one of the simplest ways to leave a legacy. The account is totally in your control during your lifetime, and you can change the beneficiary or percentage at any time with ease. Will or Trust If you do decide to create or revise your will, consider the National Federation of the Blind as a partial beneficiary. Visit our planned giving webpage, link available at nfb.org slash weblinks, or call 410-659-9314, extension 2422, for more information. In 2022, our supporters helped the NFB send 371 Braille Santa and Winter Celebration letters to blind children, encouraging excitement for Braille literacy. Distribute over 3,000 canes to blind people across the United States, empowering them to travel safely and independently throughout their communities. 
Deliver more than 500 newspapers and magazines to more than 100,000 subscribers with print disabilities, free of charge. Give over 700 braille writing slates and styluses, free of charge to blind users. Mentor 207 blind youth during our Braille Enrichment for Literacy and Learning Academy. Award 30 scholarships each in the amount of $8,000 to blind students. Just imagine what we will do this year and, with your help, what can be accomplished for years to come. Together with love, hope, determination, and your support, we will continue to transform dreams into reality. Creativity is more accessible than meets the eye by Rashika Kartik. Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, Rashika Kartik. Photo 2, the caption, A couple walks arm in arm down a street under an umbrella and a canopy of trees with old light posts visible on their right. From the editor, I'm not sure I've ever heard a bad TED Talk, but what I do know is that I've never heard one better than this. Rashika, following in her father's footsteps, volunteered for and learned from the Colorado Center for the Blind, and as with most bright, motivated, and giving students, she is now amplifying and giving back. Here is her talk, which you can also find in a link at the end of this article. Readers of the audio edition of The Monitor can find the link at nfb.org slash monitorlinks. Don't touch the art. Heard this before? Perhaps in a museum or a gallery? Don't touch the art. It's four simple words. And yet, it disproportionately impacts 253 million blind or visually impaired people worldwide. Art prides itself on pushing boundaries, yet we still view creativity two-dimensionally. Literally. Instagram portraits, sculptures we must stay 10 feet away from at all times, the kind of art you can look at, but cannot fully experience. It is precisely this view that is stopping us from a more inclusive, innovative future. Making creative outlets accessible isn't just nice to have, it's essential. According to a global CEO study at IBM, creativity is the most crucial factor for future success. And yet, a survey by Adobe revealed that 75% of people don't feel they're living up to their creative potential. So what if I told you that there's a way for almost everyone, yes, including you, to unlock your creativity and experience the world in a way you've never experienced it before? It's easy. And it starts by viewing accessibility as an opportunity for creativity. Okay, so by now, I know what you're probably thinking. I'm a sighted 17-year-old. This talk is about accessibility, creativity, and blindness. <laughs> Isn't that like a dolphin giving a keynote about open-heart surgery? It's true. I'm not blind, and I'm not a professional artist. Funny enough, for the longest time, I was convinced that I was uncreative. A creative person was this cool, elusive edgelord, holed up in a dim room with brilliant ideas and black coffee, and I 
was a loud, awkward nerd with regrettable fashion sense, oh, and a caffeine intolerance. However, four years ago, I discovered that creativity is significantly more accessible than most of us believe. I was volunteering at a center for blind students, and do you know what I noticed most? I noticed that here, when a student is struggling, it's viewed as an opportunity. The teacher has to creatively find a solution that works for the student. The emphasis was no longer about helping students fit the mold, it was about changing the mold. And that was beautiful. One evening, one of my friends from the Center for the Blind, Sarah, showed me a painting that I can never forget. And I'm going to show it to you. Before I do, I want all of you to take a second, close your eyes. Let me describe it to you first. Twinkling streetlights and trees with crisp fall foliage line the path for a couple in love. Colorful fractals dance on a rainy floor beneath their peaceful silhouette. Can you picture that? My guess is that if I asked each of you to come up with a version of this painting for yourself, you would all have vastly different interpretations. Okay, so here is what the painting actually looks like. It turns out that the artist, John Bramblett, lost his vision due to complications with seizures and epilepsy. I'll admit that when I first found out about this, I felt terrible. My heart went out to him. But then Sarah showed me a quote from Bramblett himself. He said, my world is a more colorful place than ever before. She explained to me that while disability is challenging, it gives people like herself and Bramblett an opportunity to view the world differently. John Bramblett once aspired to be a creative writing teacher. Believe it or not, he didn't start painting seriously like this until after vision loss. So let me ask you, if he hadn't lost his vision, would he have become a world-renowned artist? His blindness was what allowed him to innovate in his field using colors non-representationally to convey emotion and textures to bring the scene alive. He created work that could not only be aesthetically admired, but touched and intimately experienced. Just like each of you imagined a different version of this painting based on my description, artists who are blind imagine different worlds of possibility. Creativity isn't limited to visual definitions, I mean, Creativity should include everyone. So why doesn't it? The medical model of disability. Now, this way of thinking views blindness as a physical limitation that must be cured in order to help people live normal lives. Look, I understand that the medical model comes from a really compassionate place. But when we talk about needing to cure blindness, without actually listening to blind people, we walk a tightrope between empathy and pity. Instead, I learned to embrace the theory of complex embodiment. This is a framework that understands that disability is a complex identity, much like race or sexuality. Some people, for example, view their condition physically, 
Others consider it to be a cultural identity. Some people don't want to be defined by their disability. And for others, it is central to who they are. So if you want to learn more about blindness, ask people who are blind. You'll be surprised at how diverse individual experiences can be. Everyone, yes, including non-disabled people like me, benefits from inclusion. Did you know that typewriters were created to help blind people send letters? Voice control technology that we use every day, like Siri, was created to help blind people navigate apps. Disability should never be mistaken for inability. Just ask John Bramblett. He is the recipient of three Presidential Service Awards. His art has been sold in over 120 countries. Traditional narratives on blindness would have painted his story as tragedy and then told him, don't touch the art. Bramble's painting gave me a new perspective and a newfound love for tactile art. This interest would lead me to flower-caked hands and cinnamon-scented paints. I joined tactile art classes. Eventually, I got to teach tactile art classes. I even got to meet John Bramblett in real life. I went from thinking I was fundamentally uncreative to finding a passion for the arts. Because that's the thing. I wasn't uncreative. Our idea of creativity is just wrong. In the words of Sir Ken Robinson, an international advisor on education and the arts, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. Creativity isn't some elusive trait reserved only for the 1% of artists and geniuses. In fact, creativity doesn't require inherent intelligence at all. Creativity requires courage. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, I was super daunted by taking my fundamentally hands-on teaching style online. The first tactile art workshop that I ever did virtually was a clay pottery class. In our clay substitute, flour and water, literally refused to mold into a traditional form. I was super worried that my blind students would be discouraged by such a messy experience. Yet while I grappled with executing this pre-planned project, my students continued to create with delight. I saw clay and could only think of pottery, but they transformed it into silly putty, paper mache paste, textured paint. They reminded me that art doesn't play by the rules. Sometimes the best work happens when we stop planning and start improvising. That's what makes these students artists. Most people are terrified of improvising like this when it comes to creativity. We're comfortable with a well-planned strategy. And when a project veers from that strategy, we fear our ideas might be ridiculed, judged, even shamed. When we let this fear take over, more often than not, we stop generating ideas. We simply don't pursue creativity at all. The way to overcome this fear is to dismantle ableism. Now, current approaches to disability inclusion send one message, conform. We're afraid of disability because it deviates from our definition of normal. There was a poll published in the Ophthalmology Journal of the American Medical Association. They polled people nationwide and asked them, 
what's one of the worst health outcomes that could happen to you? Nearly 50% of respondents said losing vision. So where does this fear come from? It's because we can't imagine any other way to live than visually. We wrongly equate the right way of doing things with the sighted way of doing things. By reinforcing what we think of as normality, we are killing our creativity. Accessibility is currently an afterthought. We design products, artwork, buildings, and school systems assuming, well, everyone's non-disabled. And only then do we create separate spaces for those who don't fit this mold. If this separationist mentality continues, every one of us will be affected by it. According to the CDC, one in four have a disability. This means that it's likely that you have one, will develop one, or will become close to someone with one. So what can you do? Well, first, prioritize disability inclusion from the beginning. Post alt text descriptions on social media. Offer project-based 3D learning opportunities in schools. Build architecture intended for every person to enter. Next, collaborate with people with disabilities and learn from them. You literally can't do anything if you don't know it exists, right? So learn about ways you can bring accessibility to your school, workplace, and community, and spread your knowledge to others. And finally, reject the sighted savior mentality Embrace complex embodiment and celebrate unique perspectives. Imagine a world where everyone could express themselves or belong. A school system or a museum where people could read a textbook, touch a sculpture, listen to music. A world where everyone felt called to innovate. In the words of John Bramblett, everyone has an artist somewhere inside them. Sometimes they just need a little help letting it out. To build a more creative world, we must fundamentally rethink the way we view disability. There is no right way to be creative. When we explore the unconventional, we develop new modes of learning, connecting, and problem solving. Accessibility is an opportunity for creativity. So smell the art. Hear the art, feel the art, and yes, please touch the art. National Federation of the Blind applauds the introduction of the Access Technology Affordability Act in the Senate. Baltimore, Maryland, May 8, 2023. The National Federation of the Blind, the transformative advocacy organization of blind Americans, applauds the introduction of the Access Technology Affordability Act of 2023, S-1467, in the United States Senate by Senator Ben Cardin, Democrat, Maryland. Senators John Bozeman, Republican, Arkansas, Ron Wyden, Democrat, Oregon, and Todd Young, Republican, Indiana, are original co-sponsors of the bill. This legislation removes an education and employment barrier commonly experienced by blind Americans who cannot afford the high cost of access technology by creating a refundable tax credit in the amount of $2,000 to be used over a three-year period to offset the cost of these technologies. 
Mark A. Riccobono, president of the National Federation of the Blind, said, My wife, my two daughters, and I are all blind, and the children's technology needs will increase as they complete their education and start their careers. My family is not unique. Blind people across the nation face this challenge, and this legislation will provide critical assistance. We thank and commend Senators Cardin, Bozeman, Wyden, and Young for being champions of this act, which will help give blind people the technology they need to live the lives they want. Can We Change the World? by Joe Elizabeth Pinto A photo appears on the page, the caption, Joe Elizabeth Pinto. From the editor, This article is taken from the April issue of The Blind Coloradan, the publication of the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado. How realistic is it for us to want to change the world? Here is our author's take. Here is the way the article was introduced by Kevin Worley. From the aggregator, Readers of this blog are probably familiar with author Joe Elizabeth Pinto. She is a frequent contributor. We have also enjoyed her poetry at NFBCO state convention banquets. Here is what she offers up for This Blind Coloradan. Sometimes I get frustrated because the world isn't changing fast enough. It angers and saddens me when prejudice and ignorance happen, especially in front of impressionable young people. I need to get blood drawn regularly because of my autoimmune issues. During one of my visits to the local hospital, the woman who checked me into the lab was nearly young enough to be my daughter. During her long list of routine questions, she inquired about my insurance. I told her I have Medicare. She saw the guide dog sitting placidly beside me and asked, You're disabled, right? I affirmed that I'm blind. She said, So you don't work. Irritated, I started to ask her what my disability had to do with not working. But before I got my mouth open, my teenage daughter spoke up. My mom edits books. The woman turned to my kid and asked, She edits books? But she does it for free, doesn't she? Why would my mom work for free? My daughter laughed in that condescending way only a teenager can. No one does that. Oh, um, she's disabled and she works for money? The woman stammered. Sure she does. Lots of disabled people work for money, my daughter replied, as if the woman had just sprouted an extra head. I'm self-employed, I broke in. I draw social security disability and freelance as a braille proofreader. Let's move on with the relevant questions, please. This is the new millennium, people. Our kids understand equality as naturally as breathing when they grow up with it, but we're still explaining the basics to professionals. Thirty years ago, I thought we could change the world in sweeping waves. These days, I'm older and wiser, and I've learned that change comes one hard one inch at a time. When I speak up for myself at the hospital, or when my daughter laughs because an uninformed lab tech suggests I must work for free because I'm blind, that's an inch. When members of the NFB gather at the Capitol to speak to their elected officials or demand textured pavers on the 16th Street Mall, that's an inch. The answer is yes, we can change the world, inch by precious inch. The Blind Do Lead the Blind by Dr. Jacob Fried Delivered before the NFB Annual Convention, Los Angeles, July 1976 From the Editor We often recognize in these pages the blind who lead the blind. Sometimes we run the rather lengthy article recognizing each member of the board and its officers. At other times we run biographies of those newly elected. But mostly what we read is about who the blind are who lead the blind not what they must strive to be for all of us. 
So here is a definition of the characteristics we want in the blind who lead the blind, written by Dr. Jacob Fried and delivered at the 1976 Convention of the National Federation of the Blind in Los Angeles. Anyone wanting to know more about Dr. Fried should do a bit of research. It will be well worth your while. Here is his presentation. Before this National Federation of the Blind came into being, the dictum from the Gospel according to St. Matthew prevailed, that if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. This was literally taken to be the Gospel truth. Several of Kenneth Jernigan's inspired addresses revealed the influence of this canard in the crucial areas of literature and history which have so prejudicially influenced attitudes to the blind into harmful, discriminatory, and bigoted stereotypes through the ages. But that was B.C., before Chick, and now, A.J., after Jernigan. The miracle of change for the better is taking place in erasing this libel. Certainly in the quarter century since this speaker began to march to the beat of this historic movement, he has witnessed a virtual miracle occur in the betterment of the cause of the blind. Our leaders and you, our convention delegates from all 50 states, are the living proof that the blind do lead the blind. We know that each of us has to realize his own potentialities and cope with the special circumstances of our own life. In a more fundamental sense, the blind who lead the blind stress the goal each of us is striving to achieve together, that the good of each, the good human life requires liberty, equality, opportunity, and security to engage in what Jefferson wished for each of us, the successful pursuit of happiness. The blind who lead the blind understand that the happy or good life is essentially the same for all human beings. What is really good for any human being is really good for all other human beings. So if happiness consists in a life enriched by all the things that are really good for a man, happiness is the same for all men and women. We here are the living testimony to the NFB-achieved miracle that the blind do lead the blind, that we don't need or want an American foundation for the blind to lead the blind, that we don't need or want a National Accreditation Council for the blind to lead the blind, that we do have a National Federation of the Blind and by the blind to lead the blind. This is where we are in Los Angeles on July 6, 1976, in a day when the blind lead the blind. As Mayor Bradley told us this morning, David Hartman became the first blind person in 104 years to graduate from an American medical school when he received his medical degree from Temple University this June, too. Hartman, who is 26, was blinded by glaucoma when he was 8. He will practice psychiatry and rehabilitative medicine. After compiling straight-A records in high school and college, Hartman was rejected by nine medical schools. But the 10th took him, and now he is the first blind person to receive a medical degree. This is indicative of the new era that is dawning under the able leadership of the blind who lead the blind. Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, and Albert Einstein were men whose probings into new frontiers changed the attitudes and beliefs of mankind toward the past from which he came, toward himself and toward the space and time in which he and the globe on which he dwelled existed in relation to the vast orbital, nebular universe. Darwin attacked man's need for ego afflatus, out of which he had created God in man's image. Man was not the creation painted in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel masterpiece as coming to life out of the inert clay at the touch of the Almighty's fingertip. Instead, blasphemed Darwin, the heretic, he had evoluted through the eons from the primeval slime to an arboreal habitat as a primate, an ape from whom man had descended to earth, learned to stand erect, to walk, and to become humanoid. Freud stormed the bastions of man's rationality and facade to reveal the hidden terra incognita of the disguised and repressed inner being of his libido, id, 
and ego which, like the iceberg, was nine-tenths concealed beneath his surface in the subconscious, with its fears and passions and schizoid irrationalities and nightmares. Einstein shattered the Ptolemaic universe already battered by Copernicus, with his theory establishing the interrelation of mass and energy. He completely revised existing concepts of fundamental universal laws and paved the way for the atomic age. Against skeptics, the Orthodox Church, and entrenched beliefs this trinity of explorers into the uncharted seas of knowledge prevailed, with the truth of their brilliant insights put forward with unflagging and courageous perseverance against the storms and diatribes of the outraged defenders of the establishment. Since these men, our individual sense of frontier has been drawing inward until today, the greatest voyages are not the astronauts rocketing to the moon, but those of self-discovery for enlightenment, personal growth, self-understanding, and self-appreciation of the potential, regardless of our degree of sight, to fulfill one's self through proper training and education, and to realize one's hopes and aspirations. Like these three, our own immortals, Jacobus Tenbrook and Kenneth Jernigan, were brilliant and iconoclastic searchers for truth whose new insights and revolutionary views concerning the blind person and his world brought counterattacks and ostracism from the paternalistic, patronizing establishment lords of things as they are. Out of their knowledge and keen, honed intellects, they preached a doctrine of self-understanding, self-help, self-organization, and self-fulfillment that was a scathing indictment of the benevolent depotism and feudalism that maintained the blind as indentured servants and wards, whose obeisance to the status quo was their necessary passport for service. It is no wonder that these blind men who led the blind and who challenged as frauds those who proclaimed themselves the monopolists of the only Sinaitic revelation and their NFB movement were an anathema to be exercised and excommunicated by the AFB NAC establishment and their sycophant, the Judas Lackey, the American Council of the Blind. The first of this famous Chick Ken duo who hatched the NFB movement of the blind who lead the blind, Chick Tenbrook, became the prophet of a new revelation of the blind as normal individuals who cannot see, but with the right to fulfillment of their talents, aspirations, and personalities. Chick pointed the way to self-discovery and fought for equality of education, training, and employment opportunity to achieve the potential of which the normal blind man was capable. He realized that only through the instrument of a democratic movement in which the blind led the blind could they storm the imprisoning fortresses that girded the country of the blind so that they could leave the captivity of their feudal selfdoms and cross the frontier to freedom and the chance to share the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Chick is gone, but his spirit marches on with us here today. His Joshua is Kenneth Jernigan, and today the struggle still persists on new battlefields. We still have to put on our war paint and go out to do battle. A white cane law here, for proper vending stand and sheltered workshop conditions there. For the right to teach somewhere else against all attempts to homogenize us. To set standards for us rather than with us, and etc., etc., and etc., as the King of Siam said to Anna. Today we are embattled on this field of who justifiably and democratically accredits whom. With the knowledge of how far we have progressed from what we were, with the promise that we can scale the heights through the climb, be hard and wearisome, and be set by obstacles to be overcome, we shall be alchemists of the present under our peerless blind leader of the blind. Dr. Jernigan, the fighter who has taken the torch from Chick Tenbrook's hands, knowing that we are part of the process that is turning the base metal of the pejorative blind, to the golden image of a man who, like all normal men, can be a citizen who is master of his soul and his life, and a contributing member to a better life for himself, his community, his nation, and all mankind. 
Here and now the blind who lead the blind pledge that the American tricentennial shall see freedom, equality, security, and opportunity for the blind as a goal attained. Here today, as we begin this third century of our nation's existence, the blind who lead the blind declare that a blind person can be an equal citizen in society, provided we overcome the critical problem facing the blind in our time. The attitude of the sighted majority who control the pathways to equality of training, opportunity, employment, and first-class citizenship in our society. So long as this battle is not won, the blind will remain among the most disadvantaged, discriminated against minority group in our society. Last year I was privileged to read Dr. Jernigan's keynote address to the First World Conference of the Jewish Blind in Jerusalem, Israel. We also showed our NFB film at that historic meeting. Golda Meir was so impressed by this conference that she asked to see me. I told her that, unlike the Abu Rudai's oil fields, the blind of Israel are a rich, natural resource which you don't have to give back to the Arabs. The blind who lead the blind have made a commitment to a comprehensive program of positive and creative life for the properly educated and trained blind in a democratic society. They know that this great movement offers us an opportunity to serve the blind in a fiduciary capacity to the best of our talents, knowledge, professional training, and experience. We meet together in a time of ferment, innovation, and experiment on the frontiers of social action, civil rights, public education, and intercommunity relations between the blind and the sighted world in general, and personnel directors and business and industrial leaders who command the gateways to employment in particular. Obviously, we will experience frustrations, disagreements, and setbacks. But we know from the achievements of the blind under the leadership of the blind that we will continue to make significant contributions to equality, security, and employment opportunities for the blind. The fact is that it is the blind who lead the blind who develop the program of legislation, social action, and public education. The blind who lead the blind proved through the actions of the NFB that legislation and litigation are sharp tools in the battle against discrimination. Legal action, however, has only an indirect bearing upon the reduction of personal prejudice. It cannot influence thoughts or instill subjective tolerance. The law is intended only to control the overt expression of intolerance in the denial of proper employment, education, public accommodations, and housing opportunities. But outward action, as our psychological and sociological findings determine, has an eventual effect upon inner habits of thought and feeling. For this reason, legislative action has been one of the major moves in reducing not only public discrimination, but private prejudice as well. We have made our most progress in this area of legislation, which has opened up primarily civil service and teaching opportunities for the properly educated and trained blind. The other major area on which we are just making inroads is public education. This is necessary to create a positive aura to overcome the latent subconscious prejudice of the majority culture. Proper public education provides a positive framework against which personnel directors and employers are willing to open opportunities. It is in this area which the blind who lead the blind feel is among the most important positive paths for us to follow. A survey made by a committee on public education showed that the incidence of employment for the blind was in direct correlation to the success of the public education programs in these communities. That is why it has become a cliché that if you are blind, it is best to be blind in Iowa. The blind who lead the blind demand equal acceptance and participation in society, they declare that blindness is not essentially a severe handicap, that blind people are normal human beings, that blindness in itself is only a physical lack which can be met and mastered, not an impairment of mental powers or psychological stability. 
Therefore, all arbitrary barriers and discriminations, legal, economic, and social, based on the false assumption that the blind are somehow different from those with sight, must be abolished in favor of equality of opportunity for all who are blind. In summation, we ask, what is it that the blind essentially want from society and those in the seats of power? We declare that the blind want the recognition that we have the ability and the right to be equals and partners in determining the agency and government policies that concern us because they control our destiny and the quality and shape of our lives and position in society. Therefore, the blind who lead the blind want the sighted world to have a respect for life and the lives of the blind, to have a sense of the rights of the blind, to operate as partners with the blind in all decisions without secrecy and with decency and integrity, to join as equals with the blind and with an equal concern in formulating together the best program and standards possible for the blind. We declare that we cannot, we will not accept anything less. Under the blind leaders who do lead the blind, the day will come when, following our Joshua, Dr. Jernigan, we will blow our trumpets until the walls of Jericho built against us will crumble into dust. This will be done, and so for the battles won, and for those ahead that we will win, I salute you, Dr. Kenneth Jernigan, and you, the delegates of this great assemblage, who are the blind who lead the blind, as frontline soldiers in the victory ahead in the liberation war for humanity. Four leading brands and the National Federation of the Blind join Be My Eyes Virtual Volunteer Corporate Beta Test. From the Editor The National Federation of the Blind has had a long-standing relationship with Be My Eyes and was so inspired by the project that we presented the Balotin Award in the amount of $25,000 to the company in 2018. Having all the volunteers we could ever want is a significant accomplishment. Adding a virtual assistant is a tremendous milestone. Here is the announcement about the ongoing beta testing. We're excited to announce that Hilton, Microsoft, P&G, Sony, and the National Federation of the Blind, NFB, have joined our virtual volunteer beta test. Virtual volunteer is the first ever digital virtual assistant powered by OpenAI's new GPT-4 language model. Users can send images via our app to an AI-powered virtual volunteer which will answer any question about that image and provide instantaneous visual assistance for a wide variety of tasks. Our goal is to continue building this technology with and for the global community of people who are blind or have low vision to pursue our mission. Working with these amazing brands and the National Federation of the Blind is about two things. First, it's to ensure the consumer experience is not only excellent, but also solves real-world use cases and needs. Second, it's about continuing to build this technology by working directly with the blind and low-vision community, said Mike Buckley, Be My Eye CEO. I want to publicly thank Hilton, Microsoft, P&G, Sony, and NFB for their commitment to accessibility and partnership with Be My Eyes. For Hilton, we will test virtual volunteer in and around hotel environments. Hilton has graciously offered free hotel stays to many beta testers to enable real-world results, which we'll interpret and utilize for hospitality-centric product improvements. Hilton's participation with Be My Eyes Virtual Volunteer is an incredible next step in our company's journey as a leader in inclusive hospitality. We look forward to learning from the beta test to improve our experience for guests of all abilities through the power of artificial intelligence. Becky Ploger, Global Head of Reservations and Customer Care, Hilton. For Microsoft, a longtime Be My Eyes customer, we're going to test Virtual Volunteer in its customer service. Microsoft has a long history of leadership in accessibility, and its Disability Answer Desk, 
will prove incredibly helpful in testing the abilities and limitations of the technology. Be My Eyes has played an important role in improving how Microsoft can give effective technical support inclusive of all our customers and their needs. With Virtual Volunteer, we continue to improve on creating a safe and accessible environment for our blind and low vision customers. Neil Barnett, Director, Inclusive Hiring and Accessibility at Microsoft. As one of the world's largest consumer products companies, our existing customer, P&G, will work with Virtual Volunteer to test how it performs on everything from identifying specific products, ingredients, and uses, to exploring how it may be used in broader customer service applications. P&G is excited to participate in the Be My Eyes Artificial Intelligence Pilot with OpenAI. We're looking forward to testing the new technology and understanding how it can improve the lives of our blind and low vision consumers. Sumaira Latif, Accessibility Leader at Procter & Gamble. Sony has been a Be My Eyes partner since October 2022, and we are excited to welcome them to the Virtual Volunteer Corporate Beta. Together with Sony, we will test Virtual Volunteer's ability to help blind and low vision users set up their new Sony product, get access to a wide variety of post-sale services, and find all the necessary information about the accessibility features of Sony products. Virtual Volunteer will allow us to bring even more simplicity for our Sony customers using Be My Eyes. We are excited to be part of the future of accessibility by ensuring our products are accessible and enjoyable to everyone. Michelle Ward, Policy Lead at Sony. Finally, our partnership with the NFB will provide early access to Virtual Volunteer to one of the world's most important blindness organizations. NFB will help keep us honest and provide blunt feedback on the product and its limitations. Together, we will fulfill our public promise to build this new level of accessibility with the direct involvement of the blind and low vision community. Throughout our history, the National Federation of the Blind has created and advanced technologies that are built on the authentic experience of blind people to empower our living the lives we want. Examples include our NFB Newsline Audio Information Service, print reading technology for today's smartphones, and much more. We are therefore proud to be part of this exciting beta program to shape the latest generative AI technology in ways that can enhance the productivity and independence of the blind. Be My Eyes is a forward-thinking company that is putting the experience and expertise of its blind users first as it leverages ChatGPT4, and we look forward to this collaboration and the many potential benefits it will bring to our community. Mark Riccobono, President of the National Federation of the Blind. Be My Eyes will continue to expand our corporate and organizational beta test in the coming months. If your organization is interested in joining the program, please email us at solutions at bemyeyes.com. Accessible Remote Access with RIM by Carl Belanger and Matt Hackert Two photos appear on the page. Photo 1, the caption, Carl Belanger. Photo 2, the caption, Matt Hackert. From the editor, if you are blind, have you ever noticed how hard it is to give or get technical support? A new product offers significant advancement in this area, whether a blind person is offering technical support to another blind person, to a sighted person, or is getting support from a sighted person who does not use a screen reader. Here is an article from two experts who explain how it works and pass along their enthusiasm for the beauty of this software. Ever lost your mind when a tech support representative on the phone asks you to click that gear-shaped thingy, or to look for some icon, down at the bottom of the screen. Or, conversely, as you try to help a family member troubleshoot some problem, you ask them to click on Settings. However, 
They just see icons on the screen with no text labels, and you have no way of directing them or telling them what to look for because there's a disconnect in how sighted users understand their computing environment and how blind people navigate. Often, it just becomes easier when the tech support can take over the computer and eliminate all the talking past one another that seems to occur because technical folks and the rest of us just have very different ways of communicating. Numa Solutions, an accessibility-minded software developer, recently released a new tool that is accessible to the blind that allows just that. Meet the Remote Incident Manager, RIM. It's an innovative tool that allows one person to use their computer to see and control what's happening on another's computer, regardless of location, so long as both are connected to the Internet. The user may not even be aware that the person remotely connected is blind or uses a screen reader. Getting started. We'll define some terms to help minimize confusion. Controller refers to the computer offering to provide assistance and target is the computer that's being helped. To set up and install RIM, type getrim.app in your browser's address bar. Select the download link. Your computer will install a small file. Open this executable from your downloads folder to begin installation. The interface. The RIM interface is similar to a web page. It includes headings, links, and buttons. Quick navigation commands work as you would expect them to, and entering information in edit boxes requires forms mode, JAWS, or object mode, NVDA. The first time you open the RIM application, you'll be asked for your email address. Enter the address associated with your account. RIM will send a verification code and will ask you to enter it into the application window. You should be taken to either the Receive Help screen or the Provide Help screen. RIM takes you to whichever you most recently visited. Receiving Help When the Receive Remote Help screen loads, focus moves to the keyword Edit box. You can immediately type a keyword provided to you by the control computer. Pressing Enter activates the Connect button and you are ready to go. The computers will be connected once the controller enters the same keyword on their end. The other buttons on their Receive Remote Help screen are Provide Help Instead, Add to RIM Account, and About. Provide Help Instead switches the interface to the controller screen. Add to RIM Account is for larger environments with multiple employees' computers running the RIM client under a master account. Providing Help The interface for the person operating the controller computer has some additional options, but the interface is still simple. Below the heading indicating that you are providing remote help, you will find the keyword edit box, a checkbox to toggle use of voice assistance, and a start button. Once you enter the keyword you provided to your target computer operator, press enter or click start. The two machines are connected. The checkbox to provide voice assistance allows both the controller and the target user to communicate verbally while their computers are connected, using a microphone headset at each end. The Provide Help screen also includes Choose a Machine, RIM Dashboard, Receive Help Instead, About, Log Out, and Cancel options. Choose a Machine provides a list of computers you've configured for unattended connections that you can select from. RIM Dashboard takes you to the dashboard discussed below. About provides your client's version information. Logout logs you out of the account you last signed into and Cancel closes the application. RIM Dashboard The RIM Dashboard looks different depending on your account subscription tier. The Dashboard allows you to manage unattended target computers, create custom RIM installers, and view session histories. Pro and Enterprise accounts have additional features. Pricing 
There are three subscription tiers available, Personal, Pro, and Enterprise. Here's the basic breakdown of the different tiers. Personal costs $99 annually, $9.95 per month, and allows you to set up one controller and up to 10 computers with unattended connections. More targets will incur additional costs. You could pay up to $549 annually, $54.95 per month. Pro starts at $999 annually, $99 per month, and allows an unlimited number of target machines. Pro accounts may have up to three controller machines and can include up to three simultaneous sessions. Enterprise costs $5,000 annually plus a one-time $1,000 setup fee. There is no monthly billing option. Enterprise accounts can have unlimited target computers, can configure groups to help manage target machines, and can configure access control to users on the account by target group. Enterprise accounts can set up unattended access to Windows servers and can set up completely silent installation for unattended target computers. Additionally, RIM allows free access for 30 minutes at a time per 24-hour day and also sells day passes which you can purchase. These day passes allow for 24 hours of use according to the time connected, not the calendar day, which is nice. Definitely visit the NUMA Solutions website for full details. The Screen Reader Difference Remote Incident Manager is a streamlined, low-latency remote access tool. I think its biggest strength is its ambivalence to and full compatibility with different screen readers. JAWS and NVDA both have tandem tools for connecting with other computers running the same program, but RIM doesn't differentiate between them. RIM works whether or not a screen reader is running. So how does this work? Let's first consider a blind technician wishing to control a remote computer without a screen reader installed. The controller machine must be running NVDA. RIM installs an add-on, developed for NVDA, which allows the local version of NVDA to act as the screen reader for the target computer. The target computer's user has no overt sign that the controller was using access technology. They would not hear speech. Let's consider a sighted controller connecting to a target computer running a screen reader. RIM provides both the video and audio outputs of the target computer, and it transmits both mouse and keyboard inputs. The person operating the controller would hear the screen reader on the target computer, but their work isn't inhibited. What if both computers are running screen readers? Once the connection is established, the person on the controller computer operates the target computer using its local screen reader. Conclusion RIM is a true breakthrough in remote desktop access, especially for blind information technology professionals. It's a fast, simple, secure means of connecting to your home and office computers. Both remote and local users can operate the target computer simultaneously, making it a unique tool for providing one-on-one -on -one training. Pro and Enterprise subscription tiers offer a variety of advanced tools and functionality, even making remote access to Windows servers possible without the need to install screen reading software directly on the server. We've only scratched the surface of RIM's capabilities, but are seeing valuable benefits from its use at our Baltimore office. Lift Up with Lift Roundup by Patty Chang There is a photo on the page, the caption, Patty Chang. From the editor, Everything we do takes funding, and it is good when a business acknowledges our worth and gives customers an opportunity to help. Here's what Patty Chang, our Executive Director of Development, offers to promote this opportunity. Lyft and the National Federation of the Blind have been working together for some time. Our partnership often means that we hold Lyft accountable and provide honest feedback on their progress. That feedback is not always positive, 
particularly when we report issues related to ride denials involving guide dog handlers, but this article shares news about Lyft we hope you will welcome. In December, the National Federation of the Blind joined Lyft's Roundup program and became one of only 13 charities invited to participate. Anyone who is a Lyft user can select the National Federation of the Blind in the app, and Lyft will round up the rider's fare to the nearest dollar. 100% of the difference is forwarded to the National Federation of the Blind. The Lyft Roundup program has potential to bring in much-needed financial assistance to the National Federation of the Blind from members and non-members alike. It took me all of two minutes to sign up, and I feel good about helping the Federation to fund things like free white canes, early childhood programs, NFB Newsline, and Bell Academy. NFB member. Signing up is easy. Go to the menu, hit Donate, and choose the National Federation of the Blind. We hope that readers of the Braille Monitor will also ask their friends, family, and colleagues to sign up for Lyft Roundup and select the Federation too. Here is an example of what you can share to encourage those you know to sign up. This would be perfect for a text, social media post, or an outline of what to say in conversation. An exciting and easy giving option for everyone. The organized blind movement has joined the Lift Up program, so you can contribute every time you ride with Lift. The program will round up the cost of your ride to the nearest dollar and donate the difference. In the Lift app, simply go to the menu, navigate to Donate, and choose National Federation of the Blind. Share this with all of your friends and family, because all of our small change leads to making a big difference. Thank you for your support. Summer Tips for Parents of Blind Children by Lashana Fant There is a photo on the page, the caption, Lashana Fant. Summer reminds us of sweet lemonade, barbecues, swimming, and beaming sunshine. Convertibles, beaches and sandcastles, outdoor walks, and the joy and excitement surrounding the end of the school year are icons as well. During these summer months, kids will need time to learn and play. Parents, please slide down this refreshing list of ideas to help prepare your child for the upcoming school year and everyday life. 1. Slice out time for your child to have fun, relax, and enjoy their summer. 2. Arrange opportunities for them to learn their accommodations, how to advocate for themselves, and what needs to be done to receive the appropriate support. 3. Create social opportunities for your child to interact with others. 4. Organize a staycation or vacation for the family. Either of them can be filled with sunny moments. 5. Have them participate in transition activities to help plan and nurture their post-secondary goals. 6. Allow time to work on daily duties involving cleaning, organization, personal health, and any needed tasks to propel their independence. 7. Schedule moments for them to explore communities and areas using various modes of transportation and their orientation and mobility skills. 8. Download various accessible apps and ensure your child can maneuver them. Shopping, navigation, games, learning platforms. 9. Talk with your child about their goals and subjects for the upcoming school year and assist them with learning some of the content over the summer months. 10. Attend the National Federation of the Blind's 2023 National Convention in Houston, Texas to attain resources, interact with others, and learn lots of current information. NFB Pledge I pledge to participate actively in the efforts of the National Federation of the Blind to achieve equality, opportunity, and security for the blind, to support the policies and programs of the Federation, and to abide by its constitution.